Well, let's stand for the reading of God's Word as two of our seniors, Olivia Isle and Lane Jones, come and read to us from Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are, those who the, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil um, against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you both. I'm very grateful. May is a month for many people where our eyes are moving back. For all the seniors, it's probably already happened, and if it hasn't yet, it will over the next couple of weeks, where you're going to see your parents and grandparents, others who love you dearly, shedding tears. Um, they're going to see pictures, and you're going to see pictures, sometimes in private, sometimes on big screens, where you are a baby, and you probably didn't get to choose the picture they put up there, but it's going to move through with music, signifying these incredible events that took place in your life. You've just graduated or are about to graduate high school. There are other seniors in our church, those who have just graduated college or are about to. Others are moving on from eighth grade to ninth grade, and some of those schools have their own graduation ceremonies. And in each time, there is this turning of a page. There is a moment, especially for parents and grandparents, where they're remembering what took place, just as you are, and then looking forward to what's next. Our daughter Madeline, our second born, graduated yesterday from the University of Oklahoma. Here's what was great about that ceremony. For her college, it only lasted one hour. <laughs> it was incredible, but it was very different. When my wife and I and some of her siblings came into the huge auditorium, it was pretty full, but we didn't know one person other than our daughter compared to graduation where we knew almost everybody that was there, it seemed. Pictures are going to flow. You're going to see things and remember things and be celebrated. And it's wonderful. But then the next chapter of your life is going to come with new pictures. My daughter Maddie, an education major, is soon going to be teaching at Yale. Not the one known as a college <laughs> with the handsome Dan, the bulldog, but the Yale Roadrunners here in Richardson. She'll be teaching fourth grade. Listening to the young woman who spoke at her graduation, she said some very interesting things, not unlike what you're going to hear at your graduations, centered on the world as it's been while you've been in school. Think about it. Spring break two years ago and all that began to change so quickly. I heard that 
woman began to speak about that, thinking, we're over this. <laughs> we don't need to hear any more about the pandemic. That was a wake of destruction we're still experiencing, but let's move on. But reality is, when she said this, we're all teachers. We're going to be teaching in textbooks the reality of what we have been living. It's true. You guys have grown up in an amazing season in the history, not only of our country, but our world. Leaving graduation, celebrating that wonderful day, coming back from Norman to Dallas, turning on the news last night, I had not heard of what took place in Buffalo. A young man about the age of some of you decided out of hate that he would go and take the lives of innocent people. We live in a dark, divided, and dangerous world. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time staying in the darkness and in the division and in the danger this morning because I want us to remember what we've been singing, that we will not deny the reality of that pain, that brokenness, that evil, but we must remember who we are in Christ in the midst of it. I love what Will said to you, that in Christ, you will be a problem for the enemy wherever you go. We want that for you. We want you to look at us and challenge us to see if we're being a problem for the enemy in the places of work that we go, in the church that we worship in. And we will be an enemy of the enemy, a problem for the enemy, a serious problem for the enemy if we, abiding in Christ, live out the Beatitudes that are before us. This morning, as I said last Sunday, we're going to continue to talk about mercy. And mercy in this text is primarily centered on compassion. It's centered on this idea of compassion that's not just an emotion, a feeling for those who are suffering in the misery of sin in the world, but it's compassion with action. I love how Will said that you are committed to missions. Well, mercy is mission. It is being moved by something that you see that is broken, something that is dark, something that is divided, something that is dangerous. The world in which you have grown up in, especially the last couple years, though it's unique, is not new in history. Think about Genesis 3, all the way back to the beginning of your Bible. When Adam and Eve ate the sin that the evil deceiver tempted them with, when they ate the apple committing that sin, they experienced this incredible darkness. They experienced division between them and God, between them and one another. They were naked before sin and didn't even know it. And as soon as they ate the apple, their eyes were opened. They realized they were naked and they hid. Pay attention to the word eyes today. Then they experienced the danger of what sin does in the world the violence of their first two children, one murdering the other. Ever since the fall, the world has experienced the darkness. It has experienced the division. It has experienced the danger. So I want us all to think about today, not just the seniors, is how are we looking at the world? And how is the world looking at us? Does the world and those who are lost see the radiance of something or someone in us that is compelling? They will if they see these attributes in our life. They will see mercy and not understand it. 
because mercy is truly shocking. To understand it, I want everybody to grab their own Bible if you brought it or open the Blue Pew Bible and turn to Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. I encouraged you last week to go to this place and listen to this story again. It's not new to any of us. Maybe there's a few it would be new to, and I'm glad it's new to you. I'm glad you're here to hear it. But I'm going to read the parable of the Good Samaritan. For there is no greater story that Christ used outside of his own example of mercy. Luke chapter 10, look with me at verse 25, and let's walk through this. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now listen to what he says. Jesus says, what is written in the law? Have you, how do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to them, you've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But the lawyer wanted more justification. He wanted to justify himself. That's what he was asking for. And who is my neighbor? In other words, he wanted to know, who do I have to love that way? Now listen to what Jesus says. He replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, as I've said before, we often read our Bible so fast. We can be in a Bible reading plan, and we're just simply trying to check the box for the day. Read slow, slow down. Ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate your eyes and open your ears. Pay attention to what the story is being told. How would the people have heard this story? How could this story relate to today? So picture the man. He's been robbed. He's been beaten. He's been left half dead. Have you ever seen someone like that? Not just on TV, but really beaten. It's a disturbing picture. Christ is telling this disturbing picture before he tells what's even more disturbing. He says, now by chance, verse 31, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So what do you notice about those three? All three individuals saw him. Every day we see people Maybe not lying half dead on the side of the road, but lying dead spiritually in the lunchroom, on our teams, in our classrooms, coworkers, neighbors. We see people every day who are lying half dead. We see people who are experiencing the misery of sin, sin done to them, by them, sin outside of them, and inside of them. The priest, who in this case would be the most religious, sees him, and you could tell by the way Luke, the physician, records this, from a distance he recognizes that it's a person who could be dead. And if he touches someone who is dead, he will be defiled and unclean. So from a distance of seeing the man in need, or potentially dead, he simply crosses the street and moves along the other side. He turned away from what he saw. He did not have compassion. He did not show mercy. 
He might have felt sad. We aren't told. He might have had sorrow. But feeling sad and having sorrow is not mercy. That doesn't shock the world. Seeing something that's wrong, seeing the brokenness, and acting in love with however you're able, that's mercy. The Levite, who's also religious, not as high of status as the priest, but the one who's responsible for the liturgy in the temple, he sees him. And based on the way the Greek unfolds, we see that he actually got closer to the individual. But what does he do? He steps away as well and goes down the side of the street. Whether he felt anything or not is not mercy. He didn't show mercy. Now comes the shock. Those listening to this story would have been expecting Jesus to say, but then a Jewish layperson, a person who's part of our community, but not of the religious establishment, a layperson was walking down the street. But that's not what they heard. Because as shocking as that might have been, and a slap at the establishment of religion that Jesus might have given, he does something more. He says, somebody that you despise. Somebody who would have been despised by the man laying on the street, beaten half dead. That is who comes, who sees the same man. And instead of crossing the street and pretending he's not there, Instead of only feeling something, maybe, not even that perhaps, but doing nothing even if he felt something, he moves towards him. Pick it up with me at verse 34. But a Samaritan went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine on him. Then he set him on his own animal, and he brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper. That would provide 24 days of food. And he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay to you when I come back. Then Jesus asked the question from this story, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer says this, The one who showed him, what to say? Mercy. What? Mercy. The one who was fulfilling what Christ had said was the Samaritan who showed mercy. Mercy is shown. Compassion can be felt, but compassion without mercy is not mercy. Compassion without action is not mercy. The one who showed him mercy, he said, and Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Picture the story. The priest saw him and went the other way. Didn't want to be defiled. Didn't want to take time. The Levite, the same way. Expecting this to be a story about a Jewish layperson who rises to the occasion and shows what it really means to be godly, Christ goes further and shocks him. It wasn't a Jewish layperson. It was the very people that you racially despise. This individual comes and offers mercy. What does the mercy look like? First, when he sees him, he went to him. When you see someone who is in a dark place, who's experiencing the division of this world, who is in a dangerous place, go to them. 
Last week I read from Matthew chapter 8 and 9, the two chapters that follow the Sermon on the Mount. And I showed us one after another, another how many times Jesus showed mercy. That section of scripture ends with two blind men crying out to Jesus. Jesus is passing by and the two blind men know that he's coming and they shout out, have mercy on us, Jesus. What does that mean? Don't just have compassion. Do something. Like the leper who went to Jesus early in Matthew 8 said, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus said, I'm willing. He was willing. Now to the blind men, when they cry out, have mercy, son of David, Jesus asked them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. Jesus was willing and Jesus was able. In Christ Jesus, because we are filled with his spirit, he has given us the ability to show others mercy. To not just feel compassion and walk on the other side of the street. To ignore the lonely person and walk to the other side of the cafeteria. To ignore the person who has just committed a heinous sin and is struggling in shame. He's given us the ability to show mercy, to hold Jesus out. But will we have the will? Do we have the will? Jesus had both, and Jesus gives both. The Samaritan went to him. Then we're told that he touched him. The very wounds that the man had needed to be tended to. He wasn't a doctor, but he had the ability to do triage. He had the ability to do what was needed in that moment and the will to do it to make sure this man might be able to survive. He took oil and wine, his very own things, and poured them on the wounds. And then he took the man and he carried him. How many lonely, broken people could be carried by us to the throne of Christ? He's given us the ability in him. He can give us the will as well. From there, he transports him to a place where he can receive greater need. And then he pays for the care. He gives what's necessary for now. And I'm guessing based on the credibility of the man, the innkeeper receives a promise that whatever it costs, I'll take care of it when I return. Which tells us that he wasn't just going to show mercy for a moment. He was going to return. Mercy isn't drive-by, throwing turkeys over a wall to starving people. Mercy isn't just occasionally writing a check to be done with it. That's part of it. But it's being engaged with the people that God has put in your path, our path, that are experiencing the profound brokenness of sin in them and outside of them, done by them, done to them. It's an amazing story. Keep your eyes open. What do you see? And when you see a need, has God given you the ability to do something about it? Every time, not just sometimes. And are you going to? 
that is where the will comes in. And if our life is characterized by a consistency of not caring, that means there is an enormous disconnect in our understanding of the mercy that was done to us by God himself who sent his son to die that we might live forever. One of the most amazing displays of mercy, the most amazing display of mercy, is Jesus Christ on the cross. But from that remarkable place of mercy, Jesus says one of the most amazing things. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Mercy given by our Lord, shown by our Lord, is also given to us, enabling us to show the same kind of mercy to those like us who didn't deserve it. One of the most powerful occasions of mercy on display is when we as believers show it to others who have sinned against us, others who don't think like us, others who have wronged us. Mercy is seen so bright and so beautiful when believers are willing to say to someone who has wronged them and even severe wrongings and say, I forgive you. What I'm gonna share for a moment is not cheap forgiveness. I know as children, at some point, if you've got a sibling, your parents said to you when you were in conflict, tell her you're sorry. I'm sorry. Tell him if you forgive him. I forgive you. Good, move on. Nothing of significance happened in that transaction, except the parents got a little bit of peace. And every parent has said it, and you will when you're parents. This is not what I'm talking about. Some of you have experienced profound wrongs domestically. Some of you have experienced some profound wrongs professionally. And forgiveness is really hard. And that's why forgiveness is so incredibly beautiful, especially in cases when it is so, so difficult. So please don't hear me saying that this is easy or shallow or a very quick, I forgive you, let's move on. But sometimes we think the only reason Jesus was able to say from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they, not know, they don't know what they do, is because he was God. So let me close by taking us to Acts chapter 7, verse 54. Prior to what I'm about to read, Stephen, a follower of Christ, have been telling the history of redemption up to this point. Sometimes we think if we show mercy, we're compromising truth. We never need to compromise truth. But I'm afraid that many Christians say and spew and yell truth and never show mercy. That is not what God's calling us to either. Stephen wasn't compromising truth. Prior to what I'm about to read, he said to the Jewish leaders, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. 
he was telling the truth. And when they heard the truth that had been going on for some time as Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit, is saying these things, it tells us in verse 54 what happened. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Picture that. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, if you're a Christian, the same Holy Spirit that filled Stephen in this moment in history is the same Holy Spirit that lives in you. The same Holy Spirit, not a different one, not a lesser one. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God. Can you imagine what he saw? And he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And then he said these words, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Imagine the scene. This isn't Jesus now. This isn't a divine being. This is a man just like us. He's looking up and seeing something that's beyond description. Well, at the same time, those who are grinding their teeth are rushing at him. Verse 58, then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Who is this young man? He's the one who's going to write 13 books of the New Testament. But now he's endorsing, celebrating what's about to happen to Stephen. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, imagine as the stones are being thrown at him, moved on him. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Chapter 8, you probably would stop reading at this moment to check the box for the day, but I don't want to. Let me read the first verse. And Saul approved of his execution. They didn't have mercy on Stephen because they were blind. They were doing, in this moment of stoning him, what made sense to them because they were blind. Saul, who would go on to write 13 books of the Bible, was doing what made sense to him to protect his religion because he was blind. Not many pages past this, we know what happens. As Saul is on a road, this isn't a parable now, his eyes are blinded. He hears the voice of Christ. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He spends a season blind, a few days, and then his eyes are opened. And when his eyes are opened to see the glory, a similar glory to what Stephen saw, his life is transformed. No one could have imagined that this man who was throwing Christians in prison, throwing stones at Christians, approving of the execution of Christian leaders, that he would one day profess with his lips that Jesus Christ is the one who saved me. He's the only one who can save you. He was shown mercy. 
And from the mercy he received, he spent the rest of his life seeking to show that mercy to others. Some of you know the story of Corrie ten Boom. And I'm going to close by reading something from her book, from her journal. It's too easy for us to think with stories about Christ and stories like this about the followers of Christ in the Bible that they were just some level of super Christian. It's not true. Corrie ten Boom was at Robinsbrook concentration camp. She experienced the darkness, the division, and the danger of this world like we can't even imagine. But it was at a church service in Munich years later that she writes, I first saw him, the SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Robinsbrook. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of women's clothing, Betsy, her pain-blanched face. Corrie ten Boom had been speaking at this church. The man didn't know who she was, but he heard what she said. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. He said to me, how grateful I am for your message to think that as you say, he has washed away my sins. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. That hand, that hand which had done so much evil. And I, who had proclaimed so often to the people the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. What mercy. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing. I felt nothing. Can you blame her? I felt nothing. Not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed the silent prayer. Sometimes that's all we can do. Sometimes that's all we can do. I breathed the silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. And she couldn't. And we can't, apart from Christ. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. As I took his hand, can you imagine feeling that hand? From my shoulder along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. Mercy, compassion 
for a sinner who had done so much evil against her and her sister and so many others. Mercy isn't just feeling sorry, it's action. And what was her first action? A prayer. I can't do this. I'm not able. I'm not willing. But he was, and he did. And she was just a woman, not divine. And so are you, and so are you. So are we who are in Christ. Lord Jesus, thank you for the love that you've shown to us. You loved us first, so we can say we love you back. You showed us mercy, and you show us mercies each day. And Father, from this place of mercy, you give us the ability to see, to have compassion, and to act as we are able. So would you do that even now? Bring to mind first the mercy that we have received and overwhelm us even in this moment that we might leave this place eager to overwhelm others with forgiveness, with compassion, with love. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.